0: Om sahana bhavatu sahana bhunaktu sahaviryam karavavahai tejasvina ma om shanti 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 om may the lord protect us both the teacher and the taught together by revealing knowledge May he protect us both by giving us the results of knowledge. May we attain vigor together. Let what we learn, let what we study be illuminating. May we not cavil at each other. Om, peace, peace, peace. So, we are studying the Kato Upanishad and uh, the question that the student, the little boy, Nachiketa, asks Yama, the lord of death, uh, he asks the question about the nature of the self. Who am I or what am I? Uh, The fundamental question in Vedanta. Now, Yama, first, he dissuades the little boy from asking this question, saying it's very difficult, very subtle. When the boy persists, he tempts the, uh, the student with, all sorts of worldly and other-worldly temptations. And the student demonstrates his readiness by showing his dispassion. that he does not want any of that. He just wants the uh, answer to his question, the secret of the self, what uh, we are. And then Yama is very happy and he's going to teach Vedanta now. But before that, he makes some preliminary observations about the nature of the spiritual path, about spiritual knowledge, about the student, about the teacher. So this is what is going on now. This will go on up to the 12th, 13th mantra in this section. So far we see Yama has made a very important observation that these two things come to us all the time. What are these two things? The uh, pleasant and the, um, the, the good, the beneficial. Sh- Preya and Shreya. Preya means that which is nice, that which is pleasant. Um, And unfortunately, that which is ultimately good for us is often not the, the apparently pleasant path. So the Shreya, that which is ultimately good. What is ultimately good for us? Ultimately good is moksha, liberation, spiritual freedom, enlightenment. That is ultimately good. That is the ultimate goal of all spiritual paths. Not just Vedanta that is the purpose of all the religions ultimate purpose now in that pleasant the uh, prayer there are two varieties in the pleasant itself there are two varieties see there are basically two ways of leading life one is the pursuit of um, of pleasure and success in the world uh, without uh, any attention to uh, morality ethics you know the the good life uh, without any attention to that. Just how can I um, get, you know, be happier? How can I be um, be more successful? In Sanskrit, these two are called Kama and Artha. Kama means the pursuit of pleasure, all sorts of pleasure, from a cookie to the pleasure of, say, classical music or something, all of it, uh, from gross pleasures to refined pleasures, pursuit of pleasure, that is Kama. Uh, basically, sensuous pleasure and the pursuit pursuit of success, um, wealth, lit, you know, literally money, also property and um, you know achievement and position and status, so all sorts of success in life, uh, artha. And if someone uh, pursues this without any other goal, this is primary. This is the the uh, instinctive way of leading life. The that which comes naturally to a lot of people. What's wrong with it? It produces great suffering pretty soon. In this life itself, suffering for oneself and suffering for others. Why does it produce suffering? We've talked about this earlier also. Uh, because the things that we get by this pursuit, whether it's pleasure, the objects which give us pleasure, money, positions, relationships, uh, power, status, by themselves, they are impermanent. They're fleeting, transient. Um, even when we get them, they are not satisfying. You see, if you look at the richest people, the most famous people, people with uh, the maximum number of Facebook friends, uh, people who are on the covers of magazines, uh, glamorous people, um, strong, physically strong people, all sorts of this kind of pleasure and success, none of it is deeply satisfying. You know, it is more satisfying to those who don't have it. We think if I were that rich, you know, that young again, and that famous, then I would really be happy. We don't know. The answer to that is pretty easy. Just look closely at the lives of who are that rich and that young and that famous and that beautiful. Clearly, they are not very happy. Why would we be any different? And then finally, the other problem would be that they are binding. They are addictive. In the sense, if you plunge into that and you think that that kind of uh, pleasure and possessions is going to uh, make us happy, it's, it is habit-forming. That little bit of pleasure is not, uh, not sufficient next time. We need more of it, more variety of it, and we keep trying in the hope that we will actually get lasting satisfaction. Nobody has ever has, and we'll fail also. So this is a, not a wise way of leading life in this world. There is a wise way of doing the same things. What is the wise way? The wise way is the moral way, the ethical way, the decent way. So most people, luckily, belong to the second category who want success in this world, who want to be wealthy, who want to be happy in this world. But they also see themselves as good people, as moral people, as decent people, luckily. And that's why society, Persists, society uh, exists civilization exists because most people are like this not the first category but both of these whether in an immoral unethical way chasing artha and karma success and pleasure or on the basis of uh, morality Dharma one still pursues artha and karma my pursuit of artha and karma success and pleasure is limited by guided by, disciplined by dharma, that I, yes, I really want to be do well in this world, but not at the expense of becoming an immoral person, not at the expense of being a thief or uh, or a crooked person or a nasty person, no. Um, This person is intelligent. If the goal is happiness, the person who pursues worldly goals within the limits of an ethical life is actually a more intelligent person because that gives a deeper and more lasting and more sustainable happiness than the earlier one. This It takes a little bit of um, maturity and insight to see. But both of these, the immoral, power crazy, pleasure-seeking person and the moral ethical person who's still seeking pleasure, power, success in this world, all of it falls under the term preya, the pleasant life. Beyond this, beyond even the dharmic life, beyond even the ethical life, uh, is the spiritual life. That is called shreya. That is ultimately beneficial, ultimately good. If the preya is a good life, the shreya is the ultimately good life. Uh, The ultimately good life is that which is, many names are there, moksha, nirvana. uh, um, Kaivalya. Many terms are there. This was sort of the project of the Indian civilization for four or five thousand years. That could we solve, really, totally, deeply solve the problem of life? And the answer was yes. The answer from all the traditions in Hinduism and Buddhism, Sikhism, and Sri Ramakrishna's point of view that all religions actually answer in the affirmative. Um, so that there is a deep solution to the problem of life. From immorality to morality to spirituality. Spirituality is what is meant by pre- uh, Shreya here, the higher life. The second point that Yama makes to Nachiketa is the two cannot be combined. It might strike some. How about having both? The higher goal I'll become enlightened, I'll be a Buddha, and also uh, I'll be a billionaire, and also i'll be very famous and also i'll be an olympic athlete so there's some people are smiling already it's a nice picture right and also after the death of this physical body i will go to the higher heavens um, why not so yama points out no they cannot be combined enlightenment moksha liberation salvation whatever you call it cannot be combined god and mammon as the christ said cannot be worshiped together you can't have both why not? It sounds nice. Uh, the commentator explained, they're like light and darkness. They're like dream and waking. You can't have both together. You want to wake up? You have to wake up. To Go on dreaming? Then go on dreaming. Um, if you want enlightenment, then the play of maya will come to an end. You can't have both together. Uh, Yama said, Viparite, they go in opposite directions. One is the path of samsara, subject to multiple lives coming and going, birth and death. The other one is moksha, freedom from the cycle of birth and death. Then he says in the sixth, let's come to the sixth mantra. what is the sixth mantra what does it say na samparaya pratibhati balam pramaadyantam vittamohe namoham ayam loko naasti paraiti mani puna puna vashama padyate me the means for the attainment of the other world does not become revealed to the non discriminating man who blunders being befooled by the lure of wealth, one that constantly thinks that there is only this world and none hereafter comes under my sway again and again. A dire warning. Let us see what he is saying here. He says, Balam, he says for the, the foolish one, The one who is on the other path, the path of the pleasant, maybe the crazy power seeker, wealth seeker, pleasure seeker, or the more decent, upright, honest person, but they're both, Balam means child. From a spiritual perspective, they're children. Why are they children? Because like children, they're immature about the nature of the world, they don't understand. What What is it that they don't understand? Na Samparaya Pratibhati balam. The word, he uses a technical word here. Samparaya, it's something to do with Vedic knowledge. So this Vedic knowledge is, um, does not flash upon, is not clear, does not seem real to these childish people. I won't say childlike. It's good to be childlike. There's a difference between being childlike and childish. So these people are childish. Um, so what is this Vedic knowledge? You see, the commentator says, Paralokat Prapti Prayojana Sadhana Vishesha Shastriya. The scriptural knowledge, that the one that is revealed in the text. What is revealed in the text? That there is something beyond this world. This world is not the end. This body is not the is neither the beginning of the story nor the end of the story. That we have existed before this life that we will continue to exist after death, that there are other lives, other worlds. This kind of thinking uh, is not acceptable to uh, immature minds. It's very interesting that uh, people, I have had people come and tell me, I don't believe in that sort of thing. You see, I'm a scientist by training, meaning that therefore, uh, I am an intellectual, I am intelligent, I am rational, I am scientific, and therefore, I don't believe that there is anything after death. Yama is telling Nachiketa, these are childish people. They are, not, they, are not, they are not thinking straight. Na samparaya pratibhati. Pratibhati means does not flash upon. It's not clear to them. It does not feel real to them. Samparaya literally, well, one meaning would be uh, the truth of that which is beyond this world. Another meaning would be that by Vedic ritualism one can get good karma which takes one to um, the higher worlds after death. That's a mouthful. I'll repeat. By Vedic rituals one generates good karma by the force of which one wins a place in the higher worlds after death. Now, This is part of being a devout person. This is part of being a religious person. In the Vedic ancient Vedic mind, mindset it was that in the the karma Kanda, the ritualistic portion of the Vedas, many kinds of rituals are there, which promise, if you f- follow these rituals, you're going to get, um, go to heaven after death. Those heavens are also strictly temporary, but they are much better than this world, and certainly much better than going to any number of hells. Now, it requires faith. You see, Vedanta is, is much more uh, transparent and logical, but this thing requires faith that I will exist after death and any kind of religious rituals or whatever is, is going to really help me after death. Uh, it's going to generate that good karma and I'll go to this uh, better place after death. All of this requires faith. And Yama says this requires intelligence. That kind of faith is a sign of a higher intelligence which childish minds lack. They say only this world. So that is this debate has become very huge now between the neo-atheists and people of religion. You see, all of religion depends on this, what Yama is saying, this understanding that that you do survive death. If you do not survive death, there really isn't much point to uh, any kind of religion. It might be of some practical use in this world, but uh, whether God exists, heaven exists, um, all of it has no meaning if I don't exist after death, if this body goes and that's it, I'm finished, what meaning does it have for me? If death is completely my end, nothing more than that. And for everybody also, it's true. So even the existence of God, um, existence of this so-called enlightenment, uh, it's of no meaning to me. It it, it makes no sense for me. Um, So this is the big fight between Say modern humanism, naturalism, and any kind of religious belief. So he says it does not flash upon such people that there is this, you know, there are heavens and all after death. That karma, good karma, leads to a better life in this life and the next life. And bad karma leads to suffering. Such a person would say, uh, all that's your belief. As long as people don't catch me, I can do naughty things and I'm, I'm fine. And what's the use of doing good things? If I'm dead, I don't get the benefit of that. People should recognize if I can do good things and give me awards and stuff like that. Um, maybe then that's good. Otherwise, it's no use. So this all this karma you know, leading to future lives, um, pleasure and pain in future lives, that I don't believe. So such people will not believe in karma also not believing in karma, not believing in past lives and future lives, not believing in an existence after death, let alone I am the Atman, I am existence, consciousness, bliss. Yeah. Um, there is no death for me, no birth for me also. The birth of the body is not my birth. The death of the body is not my death. There is no coming and going for me. I am that limitless illumination, that shining in which everything is appearing and disappearing that kind of Vedantic knowledge which will be taught later that's far beyond the the reach of such people who are not willing to believe even that there there can be some kind of existence after death some kind of existence after death a lot of people believe beyond that is the atman or brahman that has to be realized so spiritual life will not even begin for such people he says why don't they believe pramadhyantam vittamohenam it says pramada literally means carelessness, heedlessness, thoughtlessness it is pramada literally pramada means means mistake. they are given to this thoughtless way of living. The strange thing is such people normally say that we are the thoughtful ones, we are the intelligent ones you are the religious nut cases you believe in, in uh, heaven and other worlds and that we, we exist before death we will exist after death uh, that and those who have died, they, are, they exist in some other worlds and they'll be reborn again. Things like that you believe. These are religious nutcases. We are the intelligent ones. And Yama says, these are the foolish ones. And he will say, why is it a dire warning? What is the terrible result of this kind of thinking? He will say next. So he says, it's a mistake. Pramad. Pramada means mistake. There's a saying in Sanskrit. Pramada That This kind of heedlessness is, is equal to death. Spiritual death. That's what Yama is warning us against. Why are they given to this kind of thing? It says, put, Putra-Pashwadi-Prayo-Janesu Mind is continuously engaged in what is to be attained in this world, problems to be solved, suffering to be overcome, pleasurable things to be attained, achievements to be uh, had in this world. Literally, he says, children and cattle and etc. So cattle was wealth in those days, you know, you're rich if you had lots of cows. But um, I mean, it was It's. I think it's still true to some extent in Texas, maybe. You're rich if you have a ranch and you have lots of cows. But uh, today also, um, uh, how, how much money do you have? What's your stock portfolio? How many followers you have got on Twitter? Things like that. I mean, we must admit, a lot of people are completely engaged in that and that's real to them. That's important to them. That's urgent to them. Now, the spiritual seeker just the opposite. It is terribly urgent that I must realize God in this very life itself. Why have I not realized God? Why do I not feel the presence of God? Or self-realization, whichever language you use. That urgency definitely does not come to such people. It's these worldly cares which are most urgent for them. Then, Vittamoheram Muram Muram means a foolishness descends upon them. The commentator Shankaracharya compares it with darkness. Tamasachannam A uh, uh, The intellect is clouded by a darkness. What is darkness? (laughs) This could be unpopular. So, darkness is money. He literally uses the term vittamohena, where the darkness called money. Money here stands for all kinds of worldliness. It could be literally money, it could be your possessions, it could be your shares, uh, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and things like that. So, uh, all of this. He says he compares it to a darkness the mind becomes sucked into it and is always spent calculating how much money how much have i got how much have i lost how much can i get where can i get it what do i have to do to get it with a fraction of that uh, energy and enthusiasm one can become enlightened one can become a buddha There's this is funny story about a maharaja a prince in those days coming to the, our main monastery. And Swami Brahmananda was the president of our order. Um, so very great Swami, a direct disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. Sri Ramakrishna considered him his spiritual son. Um, so Swami Brahmananda, he was also very humorous. He so sitting and this Maharaja, this king, a prince, comes to him and bows down to him. And Swami Brahmananda says, well, why this deep bow, bowing down? Oh, on what's the occasion? And the prince says with great devotion and humility, Oh, Swami, you have renounced so much. Uh, I, am, uh, I am bowing down out of respect. You have renounced the world. You have renounced so much. And Swami Brahmananda said, Well, what have I renounced? You are a greater uh, renouncer. I should bow down to you. If you are bowing down for renunciation, then you have renounced more than me. The prince was taken aback. He is a prince. and this, this person is a monk. He said, "What have I renounced, Swami?" And Swami Brahmananda said, "I have only renounced a few pieces of glass called samsara and got the diamond called God. You have thrown away the diamond and you, for, for a few pieces of glass." So it was a way of humorous way of teaching. But with deluded by the darkness called this lust for wealth and possession. What do they think? What is their philosophy? I am loko nasti para iti mani. The firm conviction is not that I am Brahman, the world is an appearance. No. This world alone is nasti para. There's nothing else. This world alone is. And what is this world? The commentator says, um, Drishyamana whatever is experienced, whatever I see, smell, taste, touch, uh, uh, hear, Stri annapanadi, vishishto, you know, consisting of men and women and food, you know, basically what he means is, by food he means all kinds of sense pleasures, by women, etc. He says women, etc. It means all relationships in this world. All of this this is the world that they find so fascinating and say, this, this is the reality. This is all that exists. And what uh, what does Yama say? Modham. Deluded, stupid. <laughs> I won't take the name. One of the greatest intellectuals living today um, said to me in one of the top Ivy League colleges uh, there itself, on the campus, in a very exclusive place, I won't give any more details, because people may find out who it is. This person said to me, Swami, this is all that there is. You Tell me, but you can't say anything more than this. Whatever is there in this world, this much only you can say. I don't want to hear about anything else beyond this. I was just thinking, the Lord of Death has said Murham, fool. Fool. Why fool? What's wrong with it? He will say now. And what he's saying is truly terrifying. He says, Itimani, these people think. They think about it. Manana Shila. They are intellectuals. They are people who think in this way. And they come to this conclusion. There's nothing more. I really don't believe in all of that. You know, Dharajan, Atman, Brahman, Enlightenment, whatever it is, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever, I don't believe in all of that. I'm intelligent. I'm smart. Then Yama says, (laughs) Puna Puna Vashama Padhyate Me. They die. So okay, everybody dies. Again and again and again. They fall into my grip. Vashamapadhyate me means they fall into my grip, Yama says. They fall into the hands of death again and again. Hmm. Janana Marana Di Lakshana. This is a Shankaracharya's commentary writing 1400 years ago. Janana Marana Di Lakshana Dukkha pravandharuha Eva Bhavati. They mount the merry go round. The ferris wheel or the merry-go-round, they mount that, that the fer- literally, he says, the ferris wheel of, or the merry-go-round of misery, dukkha prabandha, the, the merry-go-round of misery, consisting of births and aging and disease and old age and death, repeat. You know, like rinse and wash and recycle and then back into the system again into the <laughs> merry-go-round of misery. When we're all there, then what is, why are, uh, what is special about these people? They have no chance of coming out of it until they change their thinking. On the other hand, the fortunate few who say that there is something to spiritual life, it is worth investigating. Uh, let us follow this and try to do something about it. They have a chance of dismounting from this Ferris wheel of misery. He says, dukkha pravanda, consisting of births and deaths, without seas, uh, without any end to it. We are, a poet sings, we are swept along in the current of life. We, we don't know where we have come from. We don't know where we are growing, uh, going. Why we carry this burden on our heads, we don't know. Um, so the poet sings, Bundhu, he calls God the friend, Oh, oh, my friend, friend with the capital uh, F, friend, divine friend, um, relieve me of this burden. I'm being swept along lifetime to lifetime. I know not why and I know not where, but I can't stop. So they are being swept along, he says. And then Shankaracharya dolefully adds, evam In the worlds, people are mostly like this. There are very few people who have the grace, the blessings to be, genuinely interested in spiritual life now among those who are interested in spiritual life there also yama will say he narrows it down the, the knowledge which i'm going to give you is most precious even those who have some kind of interest in spiritual life they don't come to this knowledge so easily And he's going to talk about that next the next mantra is the, the seventh mantra Before I go into that one, just a little point I want to make. What is the purpose of Vedanta? In fact, all spiritual life, but specifically purpose of Vedanta, uh, it can be expressed in in two ways. One way is the traditional way, which is uh, the purpose or goal of spiritual life in all Indian systems. They talk about a, a circle of samsara, births and deaths, many lives. What's wrong with many lives? Sounds good. No, these are very limited lives, guaranteed to die, guaranteed to suffer. Guaranteed to be happy also? No, no such guarantee. So we'll, So this is the cycle of samsara, and this is propelled. Why is it going on? Karma, causality. Everything that we do has an effect. Every effect has a cause, and every cause will have an effect. And that's why this thing is going round and round. We are propelled by past karma into this life to get the results of that karma. While getting the results of that karma, we behave in certain ways. And so we have more karma and therefore more lives. Sometimes nice, the ferris wheel goes high. Sometimes low, high is the higher heavens. Sometimes low, the lower hells. Sometimes in between this mortal world. But we are being whirled around. Make no mistake about it. So the freedom from this cycle of birth and death Uh, is called moksha. And that is the goal of spiritual life. Not only in Vedanta, um, yoga, bhakti, um, in all the schools of Buddhism, Jainism, uh, all the the Indic systems, they all look at it this way. Now one problem with this kind of thinking is, suppose a person says, I really don't believe in multiple lives. Uh, I, I don't see those past lives. I don't know if I've got future lives. But I surely have this one life. Can you restate can you reframe what spirituality does in terms of this one life? Yes, that also we can do. Um, another way of expressing the same truth is, freedom from suffering and attainment of ultimate bliss, ultimate fulfillment. In Sanskrit, Freedom from suffering, attainment of ultimate bliss. There's no talk about past life, future life, cycle of birth and death, freedom from cycle of birth and death. Forget that. Everybody wants freedom from suffering. Everybody wants deep, lasting satisfaction, fulfillment, the ultimate happiness. Yes, then this project of spirituality, Vedanta guarantees that if you follow this path, if you realize who you are, that you are Brahman, you will overcome suffering and you will get lasting happiness and bliss. So these are the two ways in expressing the same thing, the same freedom, the same spiritual result is attained but these are two ways of expressing. One, talking about multiple lives and freedom from the cycle. Another, just saying, you will have no suffering and you will go beyond death. Uh, beyond uh, You will go beyond suffering and you will attain fulfillment. Now, usually i say the second one. Whenever I talk about the purpose of spiritual life, overcoming suffering and attainment of fulfillment. But here, Yama is stressing the first one. The multiple cycles. The belief that there are lives after death, that there was, we existed before birth also. And this cycle of life and death and freedom from that. And uh, there is a wisdom to that. There is a wisdom to that. I was thinking, why not make it simple and say, overcome suffering and attain bliss and that's it. Don't talk about past lives, future lives. The thing is, if you don't talk about past lives, future lives, you just say this little life and... uh, here you will overcome suffering, and you will attain uh, happiness, and that's it. There can be problems. One problem is a person might say, I don't really need all of that then, all of your spirituality. I'm pretty happy already. I have a few millions uh, saved in the bank, and my relationships are going great. My doctor has given me a clean bill of health, um, and I, I'm fully vaccinated, the booster shot also, and things are fine for me. I don't need your spirituality. So I have have overcome suffering, more or less, and I'm pretty happy. That kind of uh, argument can come. That argument will not work if you accept multiple lifetimes. Everything that we have here, everything without any uh, any exception will be lost the moment this body goes. So nothing of that argument will not work when you accept multiple lifetimes. Uh, We are quite helpless in that case. Then only spirituality can rescue us. So the belief in cycle of birth and death, existence after death, it's actually more important. Uh, it, it's not enough just to say it will overcome suffering in this life and that's it. No, deep if you think more deeply, it is important to believe in in, um, in this cycle of birth and death, and that's why that is the traditional way in, in which spirituality is taught in all these ancient systems. Um, yes. Also, a person can argue, yeah, I'm not particularly happy now. I've got many problems. But if there are no future lives, then there's no need for spirituality also. I know that spirituality can give me uh, happiness and can help me overcome suffering. But death will also help help me to overcome suffering. So if death is the end, so suffering is the end. It's ended at death. So why do I need to go through all these boring Vedanta classes and practice meditation and all of that? And, And Not necessary." I'll just die one day and it'll it'll all be over. But if it is true, what all religions of the world say, death is not the end, not at all, not by any means, then I need to pause and think about uh, all of this. So this idea of multiple births and deaths is a very profound um, concept. It's worth thinking about. Now, having talked about the general mass of people, uh, yama now narrows it down to us spiritual seekers and even here he says um, the vedantic knowledge i'm going to give you is is very rare very precious seventh mantra shravanaapi bahuviryo nalabhya shrunvantoapi bahavo yagna vidyo aascharyo vakta kushaloasya labdha aascharyo gyata kushalanushishta what is the translation let me read out swami gambhiranji's translation of that self which is not available for the mere hearing to many and which many do not understand even while hearing the expounder is wonderful and the receiver is wonderful wonderful is he who knows under the instruction of an adept so praising the knowledge praising the teaching learning the opportunity to learn this this knowledge is not available to many. It was not available to us across many lifetimes. So it's that precious. How few people get to know about this? Young man who uh, Indian man who comes to our classes here, you're saying, I grew up in India and I never knew about these things. Our parents always told us to study, study, study and uh, get a a good degree, and get a job, and go and work in Wall Street. Well, I've done that. <laughs> but if I ask my parents, now what? I did all that you wanted me to do. And they, they are simple folk. They say, we don't know. We thought that was the goal of life. <laughs> that, well, you've got it now. You have to think for yourself. We don't know anything more than that. That this, such a thing is there, that we are not these little creatures. That we are infinite existence consciousness, place that an end to sorrow is possible, that there is we can actually know the secret of life and existence. What is the uh, mystery all about? Who am I? What is all this? All this can actually be known. There are people who have realized this, and I can, I too can do that. These things no, nobody told us. So, even to hear this, it is not uh, easy, it, it's very uh, precious. There, It's not just a case of availability. So everything is available now on the net. You can go to YouTube lectures or all all books are available. Everything is available. True. But then are we willing to listen? Is our readiness there to listen? No. A lot of people are not ready to listen, unfortunately. And you can't rush it. That is the grand play of Maya. Um, Often I've seen people, especially parents, who become when they become enthusiasts about Vedanta, the first thing they do is, I must send these talks to my son or daughter uh, or to my grandchildren, you know. And then the next thing I hear about it is, and I know I'm waiting for the disappointment to come. They are not interested, Swami. I sent it to them. They, they, they will say, great, mom. And then they go on. They don't, they don't want to listen. True. Uh, Sri Ramakrishna knew this. He would always say in Bengali, until the time is ripe, it will not work. Then what is the time, right? What does it mean? Let them experience the prayer, the other form of life. So can't we do anything for them then? Uh, Beloved son or daughter or grandchild, you can. But instead of trying to force them to become little Buddhas, what you can do is uh, encourage them to do whatever they are doing, but in a much wiser way. The two forms of prayer which I mentioned, the mad pursuit of pleasure and power and success, and the disciplined pursuit of the same things, but within the discipline of morals, decency, ethics, a sturdy belief, a devout nature, and also the teachings of Vedanta, that these are all available. The day you want them, they're all available there. So it is not available to many because the talks are, I mean, the knowledge is not available to many. At one time, it was very restricted. It was a secret. It was withheld by a few. And even if it is made available, it's good. It's all available all over the world. People are not willing to listen. You can't, you can drag a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Good. Then, those who listen. So Yama is a pessimist about the possibility of success and enlightenment, success, success rate in enlightenment. He says, among those who listen, Shunvanto api Yang voyangna Those who listen, among them, how few become enlightened. They do not not understand. They do not uh, grasp it. They don't get to listen to the right thing. Many people are spiritual, but they're spiritual in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Crash course to enlightenment. The crash is guaranteed. Maybe the enlightenment is not. So, so many quick fixes are there. So many types of teachers are there. So many types of books are there. And uh, um, Swami Vivekananda said, beware of teachers who make excuses for our weaknesses. Uh, Vivekananda further said, Vedanta is practical, but not in the sense of raising your life from what is there now to the ideal. In the sense of the ideal, it is practical. It's possible to attain the ideal, not to drag down the ideal, not to make compromises and bring it down to what's going on right now in our lives. So. Even after hearing, and if they come to Vedanta class also, even after hearing, um, Shankaracharya humorously says, among the same group of students, the same teacher, you'll have multiple results. Some don't get it at all, what's going on here. Some get get it partially. Some get quite the opposite. And there'll be a few who actually get it. So those few who actually get it, ascharyovakta vakta kushalavasya labdha, There he praises the teacher and the taught. Skillful is the recipient. And extraordinary is the master who can transmit this knowledge. Why is this extraordinary? Imagine what is going to be taught. Your real nature is going to be taught. But everything that we know of till in our lives, whatever we have seen in our lives, whatever we have learned in our lives, has been something which is objective. Something out there in the world, related to people, animals, things, related to books, um, related to things we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, we can think of, we can speak of. That's it. And we will even say, is there anything else? The moment something is taught, we, we tend to start looking for it as an object. Oh, Atman, Brahman, the void, the infinite, everything is an object. And you never find it that way. It is your real nature to which everything is an object. What we are talking about here is pretty simple, but it's also um, very subtle. It's not difficult to get, but it's very very easy to miss also. So uh, it is very difficult to, um, to, to grasp what is being said here. It has to be taught in many different ways, in different language, using different techniques, who knows what will work for whom? And that's why you need extraordinarily skilled teacher. The speaker is extraordinary. And the student is also skilled. Skilled because the student is prepared. What is the preparation? We have seen earlier. What Nachiketa has demonstrated. A one-pointed quest for the truth. I want to know. Dispassion for worldliness. Then the discipline to stick to it and the eagerness to be free of uh, samsara. So these 4 qualifications, Nachiketa has demonstrated till now. That is the extraordinary nature of the student. And the enlightened one is being praised now. Thus, instructed by Kushala. Kushala means the skillful one. Instructed by the skillful one. The master is skillful in what sense? Skillful in bringing enlightenment to the student. So I've seen our teachers, monastic teachers. Some were very learned, but they were not particularly good as teachers. If you ask them a question, they'll repeat the same thing again. And I said, "No but, I didn't understand. Then they'll repeat the same thing all over again to you. But then we have seen other teachers who were amazingly skillful teachers. Um, they could communicate in so many different ways, and some worked for some and some worked for the other. Somebody said to Swami Vivekananda, "Swamiji, what you said, you know, in that talk, I really liked you. I really liked that." And the Swami said, "Swami Vivekananda said it was for you." And then somebody else said, "But it didn't appeal to me. What you said, well, it was not for you then." (laughs) So the teaching is fine, but it may not take hold in certain minds, and some other teachings may take hold in other minds. And the teacher has to be skilled. Sri Ramakrishna was a master teacher. Uh, without parallel, so was Swami Vivekananda. Swami Vivekananda was a little more impatient. Uh, he wanted, you know, to hurry everybody along to enlightenment. <laughs> um, so, instructed by a skillful teacher, Kushala Anushishta, instructed thus by a skillful teacher, um, extraordinary is the enlightened one. gyanta, <laughs> extraordinary is the enlightened one. So he has praised the teacher and the student and the uh, teaching itself and shown us how rare it is. This is something to create. It's all advertising, building up the brand so that we, we take it seriously. It's been given to us. We take it. It's the most precious thing that we can get in life. There's no doubt about it. I've seen so many senior monks, and they would say that the most precious thing that I've got in my whole life That little mantra that was given to me, my guru, diksha mantra. It says that is so precious. It's like God has been given to you in a seed form. You cultivate that, you'll become enlightened. Like that, these teachings are these are direct teachings. You see how extraordinary these teachings are. Many people don't, uh, you know, it's difficult to get an appreciation for it. This is teaching is an effortless path. It is an instantaneous path. No misunderstanding. Let me tell you why first it's effortless and instantaneous, and then I'll walk it back. It's effortless in the sense of, what effort does it take to be yourself? Like where you are sitting right now. If I ask you, where do you have to go to sit where you are now, you'll say, nowhere. Do you have to go outside the door? Do you have to go to the east, to the west, to the north or south? No. Wherever you go, you will go away from where you are sitting. It's exactly like that. What we are, there's really nothing, no effort to be made. Every effort takes us away from from what we are. Um, Time. How much time will it take for you to be yourself? Or how much time will it take for you to sit in that chair? It's no time. I'm already there. To leave that chair and go out into your garden or uh, take a trip outside, it'll take time. To go from one place to another, it'll take time. To wait for the next year, and the ball to drop at Times Square, it'll take a few more weeks uh, for 2022 to come. But here, this will not take any time to sit where you are sitting already, no time at all. It's instantaneous. Exactly like that, the knowledge that is being communicated to us will point out our infinite nature, our entirely problem-free nature, directly, such a precious knowledge, such a powerful and instantaneous, effortless, instantaneous knowledge. However, again, just as a caution, when you say effortless, instantaneous, the temptation is to stop all effort then. Then all the effort is wasted? No, all the effort is to prepare the mind. The scattered mind has to be focused, the impure mind has to be purified, Um, attention has to be settled on this teaching, without that none of it will work. So all the effort, and a lot of effort is necessary, all the effort is for correcting the problems we have already generated in our lives, is to clear out the garbage we have already accumulated, is to settle the mind down, this fickle and unsettled mind. So A lot of effort is necessary and that will take time. So their time is necessary and effort is necessary. But the knowledge which Yama will give is actually direct, effortless, instantaneous. Krishnamurti Vishwanathan says in the chat, the problem with even the moral and ethical way of pursuing worldly success that they come at with their own headaches, which eventually makes them a source of a different kind of misery. It's like pleasure mixed with poison. Yes, samsara is that, pleasure mixed with poison. If someone is unethical, if someone is impatient and someone chases power, pleasure, success without any limit whatsoever, then the poison increases very fast and the pleasure disappears. If someone, however, is moral, follows certain principles and works hard for success in this world, which is something that is taught by every ethical system, uh, then the pleasure part of it will be more, the poison will be less, but still, yes, it's still poisoned. It's a very nature of you say. Why is it poisoned? It's the very nature of samsara. That was the great discovery of the Buddha. Anityam, anityam, sarvam, anityam. Transient, ephemeral. Everything is ephemeral. And kshanikam, kshanikam, sarvam, kshanikam. Momentary, momentary, all is momentary. Shunyam, shunyam, sarvam, shunyam. Empty, empty, all is empty. So, dukkham, dukkham, sarvam, dukkham. Suffering, suffering, all is suffering. And Dukkham literally need not mean um, direct gross suffering. Most of us right now, we, we are not in deep direct suffering right now. But the general unsatisfactoryness of it all, and the fact that it's all going to end in a pretty mm, a big mess very soon, of mess called you know old age disease, death, it's going to end. That makes the whole project rather unsatisfactory. That is Dukkham. Anu says, if prayer and Shreya cannot coexist, isn't it implied the renunciate path is the only way to Shreya? I know I've mentioned many times, one does not have to be a renunciate, but can be a fully functioning member of society. The Implication here seems to be otherwise. Yes. But as I say, the renunciate path means what? Does it mean putting on this cloth and uh, going to a monastery on the top of a mountain? No, that's not what is meant. Notice, neither Yama is a renunciate. Uh, He is a householder a godly householder but a householder and uh, as far as we know nachiketa does not become a renunciant nor is krishna a monk nor is arjuna a monk in in the bhagavad gita many of the sages of these upanishads were um, renunciate monks many were householders and all were equally enlightened so what is meant? Why is Yama saying, making such a clear distinction between the two? What is meant is, I put it this way, you have to become monk-like. Internally, one has to make this shift, that one may still be in a family, one may still hold a job, you have to do something in the world. But that has to be spiritualized. that my goal is now enlightenment. That becomes the focus of life. So that's what is meant. The renunciate life, here the renunciation has to be that real renunciation, which is internal, spiritual. That is dharma, artha. Let me put it in technical terms. They are very so, so neat. Dharma, artha, karma is not my goal now. Moksha is my goal. Dharma, moral, ethical life, on the basis of which you pursue karma, pleasure, all sorts of pleasure. Artha, uh, which is success, wealth, power, status, achievement in life. All of that is pursued on the basis of dharma. And this dharma also includes the rituals which will take you, the good karma which will take you to heaven after death. So a happy worldly life, happy otherworldly life. That's the whole deal in dharma arthakama. Now what Vedanta is telling us is there is a much higher purpose of life, which is called moksha, enlightenment. And that's for everybody. Ultimately, you have to come to that, whether you are a monk or not. And to be enlightened, to get moksha, one must give up dharma artha kama. Give up artha and kama, the pursuit of pleasure and um, success. In what sense? Notice, even after studying the entire, after being taught the entire Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna fought the war and got the kingdom. And on the advice of Krishna, so this world will continue. But now you will have to spiritualize that, that you do not seek ultimate fulfillment in this world. You seek ultimate fulfillment in enlightenment. Then you are a renunciate. What does the Upanishad say? Uh, Isha Upanishad. Isha vasyam idam Sarvam Yatkincha Jagatyam Bunjita. It says, um, see God, discover God in everything, Uh, recognize God in every experience of life, in all the moving and non-moving things, in everywhere you see inside and outside one divinity shining. And then by that renunciation, what renunciation? By the renunciation of seeing divinity everywhere. It does not say, by that renunciation does not mean the renunciation of uh, uh, family and kids and money and running off to a monastery or a convent. Uh, You could do that. Or you may not. But that renunciation is to divinize everything. That is the renunciation. So I'm Vivekananda stresses this again and again. Could you do it as a monk? Of course. A monk is a, a monastic life is specialized for that purpose. But could you do it in the world? Yes, many people have done it. And you can, you can also do it. And you should. Patrick, what is the relationship between good karma and being spiritual? Does good karma generate it? Yes. Good karma gives you a good life in this world, more of prayer, the present life. But good karma also gives you the opportunity for Shreya. It's a good question here. Good karma, decent, moral, ethical life, especially unselfish. So there are two kinds of good karma. One is the worldly kind of good karma where I lead an ethical life. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I'm not immoral. Um, I give in charity. But what what is your life all about? My life is all about success in the world. My life is all about my family and kids and grandkids. And I see nothing wrong in it. So that is uh, a good karma, the good kind of good karma in the world, a worldly good karma. But there's a higher good karma, which is not just for these things. It is unselfish good karma. When I selflessly do good to others, I don't want anything back for myself, not in this world, nor in the next world. That kind of good karma is very powerful. Then it becomes karma yoga. Karma yoga. That karma yoga is a powerful basis. In fact, it's the only basis for spiritual life, for Vedanta. So that good karma, as Patrick writes, it's, it's necessary for being spiritual. That we are here today shows that all of us to some extent, more or less, we have that good karma. We don't know about it, but you are all to be congratulated. Um, in fact, there's a term which Vedanta teachers use, use about, it, about such people. And they say, Punyatma. Punyatma. Punyatma means a sentient being who has a lot of punya merit. We are, so congratulations, you are all meritorious beings. <laughs> we are all meritorious beings. Sangeeta says, continuing further on Anu's question above, can even a renunciate living within society today or a societal establishment really achieve complete turning away from prayer and daily life? If not, who qualifies for this? Yes. So, turning away from prayer does not mean, um, you know, refusing your favorite cup of coffee or you're turning away your cookie. I've turned away from prayer. I'm going to toss all cookies away. I'm going to throw all cookies into the dustbin. You may or may not, but your goal should not be that—that that, uh, uh, you know, the pleasant things of life, the nice things of life. I'm enjoying that. It can happen. A religious life, especially organized religious life, in big monasteries, temples, churches. One historian talked about the medieval church in Europe, where all the uh, the priests and all you know they he writes beautifully. He said they lived in individual poverty but collective luxury. They lived in individual poverty but collective luxury. So there's an underhand ways of uh, uh, getting the prayers in in the world swami so, I mean, premeshananda a very senior monk of our order he writes a harsh letter to a young monk he says um, d- that young man that young monk was uh, in charge of a school where there's a boarding school and boys would study there he uses swami so premeshan uses particularly harsh language he says do you think by Raising the kids of others. Uh, raising the kids of others. Uh, you will attain to the knowledge of Brahman and attain freedom of moksha. You become a Brahma jnani. So, what is karma yoga? What is the worship of God for this young monk? Look how harshly Swami Premish characterizes it. Uh, so, and then he tells a story. This is a story this is a punch in Bengali, but let me just see if people understand this. This has a reference to the British rule in India in those days. It's a story um, current among the people in Calcutta. Remember, Calcutta at that time was the capital of the British Empire. So the the story is this, the viceroy's wife, so it, she would be the first lady, of course, British. The viceroy who ruled over India on behalf of first of the East India Company, then. Um, the British crown, the viceroy's wife, um, the first lady, of course, lady so-and-so. Now, she, want, she saw what the native people, the Indians, were eating, and Bengalis like moody, which is puffed rice, which is food of common people. It's, it's very plain food. So she was curious, this English lady. She said, I want to eat that. Now, all the officials and protocol, everything was thrown in a spin, you uh, know, in, in, in a tizzy. How could uh, she, the first lady, Lady so and so, the viceroy's wife, eat the food of the, the, of the native, the Indians, and that to the, the most ordinary kind of food? All the prestige of the British Empire will go for a toss if people see uh, her eating moody. <laughs> so, when someone hit upon a, a plan. He said, there are, in those days, biscuits, again, translations is required. Um, what British called bri- biscuits is what you all will call cookies. So biscuits means cookies. The English cookies or biscuits used to come in those days in tins, in, um, so these tins. So in a tin of cookies, English cookies, uh, empty it out and put muri in it. And then the viceroy's wife can eat muri happily, and people everywhere will think, of course, she's eating British cookies, you know, English cookies. And so it's all fine then. But she, secretly, she'll be eating the, the muri, the, the class, the food of, of the, most, the poorest, the most common kind of food. Okay, that, was, that didn't go down so well. It's a complicated way of trying to explain something. But what follows next is pretty simple. After telling this story, Swami Premishanji writes to that monk. He says, oh monk, Beware of eating moody in an English biscuit tin. Yeah. Like he says, uh, collecting money for uh, building, you know, hostels and dormitories for uh, children and enjoying the luxury of a, of a nice place to stay yourself. Yeah. Collecting uh, money to do this for the welfare of others and you uh, also benefit from it personally. You see? Uh, So he's warning against that that hypocrisy sneaking in. Yes, work is being done. A lot of people are benefiting. Poor people are benefiting. But you too are deriving some some, uh, benefit out of that. You're not supposed to. So that, that he calls it eating moody puffed rice in the um, the, the tin of English cookies. It's so cumbersome in English. In, he has very nice Bengali. He says, um, uh, And then he writes, Beware, O monk. So, um, if you are a renunciate, you have to be, you don't think too much about it. Make sure that you have. High thinking and plain living. That's a good slogan for every. It's good for everybody, actually. The next question is Krishnamurti says, perhaps the need for believing in multiple lives combined with Ishwara's assurances towards us, end of sixth chapter of Gita, is important for all of us spiritual aspirants. In case we are not able to get so, in this life, it would be discouraging if it was do or die in a single life. So, The idea is that there are multiple lives that gives the basis for spiritual practice and the goal of spiritual life. But also remember from the Advaitic perspective, there actually are no multiple lives. There isn't even this life. Mm -hmm. There is only one, um, one existence consciousness place. John Anderson says, what are the characteristics of self that are believed to pass from life to life in this described cycle? It's a sentient being. It is you, the pure consciousness, the Atman, limited by one subtle body, that is um, mind and intellect and memory, where all the personality uh, inheres, and the sense powers and prana, which goes from physical body to physical body to physical body. Now you are neither the physical body because physical bodies come and go, they are born and they die. But you're not even that subtle body which goes from physical body to physical body. Subtle body transmigrates. Transmigrates means going from lifetime to lifetime. But Vedanta says you are beyond that too. You are not even that. The one which goes from body to body, lifetime to lifetime. So I have given the example of the sun, and the pots in the garden, clay pots uh, filled with water. So imagine there are pots in the garden uh, and uh, the pot is filled with water and there's a sun shining in the sky and there'll be a little sun reflected in the water too. Now the pot is the physical body, the clay pot. The water is the subtle body, sukshma sharira. And in that subtle body, consciousness shines right now. You have to track it in your experience. Here is the physical body, it's like the pot. Here inside is the subtle body, thoughts, feelings, emotions, the person that I am. And do I feel aware? Yes, I am aware. That awareness, however, is not pure consciousness. It is the reflection of the Atman, like the reflection of the sun in the uh, water of the pot. And when this physical body, when the pot is cracked or broken, the gardener will come and pour the water into another new pot. So when the water goes, physical, the, the broken pot is left behind, like the dead body is left behind. But the water flows into another pot. And when the water flows, the same water is there in a the new pot now, and the same reflected sun travels along with the water. And this person is reborn in another body. But the real one, the real you, is not the clay pot is not even the water is not even the little shining sh- sun in that water is the real sun up in the sky the one who's shining in and been reflected in all pots in all water again one has to know how to use that example carefully there are some places it, some cases in which it applies some ways in which it does not apply because the sun and the pots and the water they are all different entities but as far as Brahman or the ultimate reality is concerned, there is only that in which all of these things are appearing. Then Shiva Priya says, Can you, can you please define pure mind? It's this dispassion of mind, you say, when a man discriminates, makes judgment of good and bad, but pure mind should not even see bad in everything, anything. No, no, no. A pure mind is that which is, has minimized its vasanas its raga and dvesha, its pulls and repulsions, its obsessions, its um, delusions of trying to get um, lasting happiness in a world which will not give it lasting happiness. A pure mind actually will see the difference between the good and the bad very clearly. Between right and wrong, the pure mind will see what the difference is here. The impure mind may also understand the difference between right and wrong, but the temptation or the fear is too much And so the impure mind forces one to do what is wrong, prevents one from doing what is right, because of the impurity. Whereas if the mind is pure, and the same knowledge is there, this is right and this is wrong, the pure mind will not push you into doing what is wrong, what is clearly known to be wrong. That urge will not be there. That tremendous temptation, or even the fear, Sometimes we do things which are wrong out of fear. We tell a lie. A kid will tell a lie out of fear of being punished. But the pure mind will uh, give us the courage of not telling a lie and taking the punishment if that comes. And will not push us into doing things which are wrong. The the eagerness, there will be an eagerness, a desire to do what is right. It's one thing to know what is right and what is wrong. And another thing, to have a repulsion for what is wrong and an attraction for doing what is right. If that thing is there, that's a sign of a pure mind. Alright. There's another mantra I wanted to do but it will take a little bit of time. So we'll do it next time. Please take care everybody and stay safe. Let me do the Shanti mantra. Om Shanti 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 hari Tat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Paramastu.